All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, welcome to a, another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and I'm super excited that you guys have tuned in today because returning for their second time on the show uh, is our guest today, Brad Jersak. Brad, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, I had a blast the last time you were on, and uh, I've had some very cool interactions with you since then, and I've always been a, a huge fan of your work. and. Um, your new book that you have coming out here shortly is fantastic. And so I couldn't pass up the opportunity to speak with you about it. So thank you for, for being here. Much appreciated. So um, I guess just real quickly, just for listeners who uh, maybe weren't around for the first time that we talked or uh, perhaps haven't had the opportunity to come in contact with your work. Can you just share a little bit about uh, who you are and what kind of things you do? Sure. Um so I'm Brad Jersak, and after 20 years of pastoring, I melted down and went and recovered my life uh, through PhD studies. And by the time I was done, that uh, became a entered the academic world. So today, I'm now dean of theology and culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada, and uh, we do modular. Uh, grad studies work for those who are interested in ssu.ca. And aside from that, I do work for the Christianity Without Religion magazine, where I'm an editor and I do layout and stuff like that. And meanwhile, I'm writing books. So I, I'm a busy guy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Um, well, I think if my memory serves me correctly, the last time you hung out with us, the podcast was called Theology Doesn't Suck. And okay. We have, yeah, we have since rebranded and uh, we're now called Rethinking Faith. Um, and so a question that we really like to ask just off the bat to kind of get listeners a little bit more um, insight into our guest is the question, what do you feel is the most important aspect of your faith that you've had to rethink? Oh, I have to 
I have to say, first of all, the most important thing about my faith is a living connection with Jesus. Um, but I don't know that I've rethought that. <laughs> so the thing I've, I've most had to rethink is the nature of God revealed in Jesus, whereby I no longer believe retribution is in the nature of God at all. That affects all sorts of elements of our theology, of course. But if God is love, then every then every facet, every, every attribute of God needs to be an adjective of love. You can't have retributive love. That's not a thing. <laughs> um, you, could, you, you can do a lot with, with love. You know, the, the parent who's severe out of love, well, that's a thing. And there is judgment, but it's not retributive. So that's been a, that's been a big project for me over the last 20 years is to work that out in a positive way. Okay. If it's not that, then what is it? And I, sure. I, yeah. So that's a, a fantastic question because if, if we're growing, then we had better be rethinking faith as yeah. we outgrow the old clothing and wineskins. Oh, most definitely that. And it's, it's interesting too. That's been my experience as well. And also uh, rethinking faith, not just like for me, I had a, a shift, um, I guess maybe about a year or so ago where everything was just uh, intellectual for me. And then also part of my like rethinking faith shift was moving from head into heart. Yeah. What you were talking about earlier, that experiential connection with uh, Jesus, um, that deeper sense of knowing has been huge, 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 huge for me. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's a future for Christianity apart from that. Oh, I, I mean, and if yeah. Christianity is a thing, right? The, the living <laughs> connection with Jesus. Um, all all Christians will need, need to become mystics, or they will cease to be Christians. I don't. I don't think it's going to work from a rational. Well, we've we've moved past rationalism by a few hundred years, and the evangelicals, for example, are just starting to learn that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right, and that's uh, that's really been what I've been finding out, and then also getting tied back into these deep like apostolic roots within the Christian faith and tradition uh, from like the early patristic, like church fathers and um, learning things through like our, you know, through like Eastern Orthodoxy and things like that has been huge, huge game changer for me. It Um, really is. They're good guides, aren't they? You know, very much so. Very much so. Cool. Well, one of the things I guess that comes uh, with, rethinking your faith is the topic I actually wanted to talk to you about today, which is your latest book, which is called A More Christ-like Word, Reading Scripture the Emmaus Way. Yep. And so I want to take a dive into that uh, with you and, and kind of hear your story, talk about some shifts that happened in your life. Uh, but just for starters, I want to ask a really basic question that I feel like everyone probably always asks, but it's helpful. Uh, why did you decide to write this particular book and who did you have in mind? Who are you writing for? Oh, great question. Um, you know, it's really part of a trilogy that started with like seeing God as Christ-like. So the nature of God, right. And in, in a more Christ-like God, and then a more Christ-like way was actually how we see humanity. And so if we come to conclusions that say God is non-retributive, um, we end up bumping into a particular way of reading the Bible that many of us inherited. And so what's happened is you've got biblical literalists who've only learned 
how to read the Bible from modern from modernists, whether liberal or conservative. It's a, entirely a 19th century way of reading the Bible, which is way too recent. The result of that way of reading is that you either double down on your conservatism and just take everything the Bible says literally, which ends up creating a monster God, or you reject the Bible for the very same reason. Those who are rejecting the Bible are still just literalists. They just have concluded that it's a toxic book. Why? Because they're still reading with 19th century or 18th century lenses. And so what I'm doing then, that's the two audiences, really. In other words, everyone. <laughs> uh, for those who still embrace the Bible, but employ it in toxic ways because it's they're reading it as, as modernists. Um, I want to say, no, we need a more ancient way that is in alignment with the word of God himself, who is Jesus Christ. I'm also writing it for those who've put their Bibles on the shelf because they saw, they thought it was so toxic. And so they're like, well, look at this passage. I'm like, well, yeah, if you think that passage is the word of God instead of Jesus, of course you'd set it aside. But what if we're not allowed to go to that passage without Jesus as our rabbi and our sponsor? And when we do, he shows us the importance of it in prefiguring him, but also kind of exposing the human condition and the ways we project our retribution onto God. And then suddenly we're like, oh, I see. This, is, this book is a mirror. It's an epic kind of saga that has a point and it's heading somewhere. And I don't read one chapter of Lord of the Rings and assume this is like the last word on something, you know? It's like, no, you read the whole story. What's the climax? What's the punchline? What are the lessons? What are the, what are the villains about, you know? And it's exactly like that with the Bible. And when you see that, you're like, oh my goodness, this is genius. <laughs> but, and, and it's, I believe we can learn to read in the ancient way uh, in fact, I've trained children to read the Bible the ancient way so they can read any part of the Bible without it being toxic to them. You know, meanwhile, the parents are hiding the Bibles from their kids now. And I'm like, well, if, if they know how to read it, it's not a problem. And I, I think we can show them, but then we have to learn it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I think, I mean, that's very much been my experience for sure. I had that growing up. I had um, a very specific way that I was taught to, to read scripture, what it was. Um, and then those things started to get caught into question. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I can't read this book anymore. It's not helpful. Right. Um, and so then the, the, the kind of shift, the paradigm shift that you're talking about actually allowed me then to pick the Bible back up and say, whoa, this book is so much cooler, so much better uh, than I ever thought it was. Um, and so that, that's been huge. But for, for our purposes today, I thought it might be helpful if you kind of um, like walked us through a little bit of your journey when it came to scripture. So as far as like how you grew up and how you were, you know, perhaps trained theologically, what was your understanding of scripture um, at an earlier stage in your life? Sure. Yeah. So I've had a couple stages in, as I've grown. Uh, so let's call the first stage the, the dispensationalist evangelical stage where, uh, first of all, we, we thought the Bible was the word of God. And when, in fact, the Bible says Jesus is the word of God, that's not, a, that's not just 
um, uh, splitting hairs because what it meant was that in our doctrinal statements in the Baptist church, for example, and most evangelical churches and colleges, there'll be a statement that says the Bible is the word of God and, and it is our final authority for faith and practice. That's what I grew up with. And when we would read it, um, instead of Jesus as our final authority, then, then, then the question is, okay, then if it's your final authority, how do you read it? And our way was called the grammatical, literal, historical approach. And really, um, it wasn't so much literal as literalism. Here's what I mean by that. I would still do a first reading of scripture that the ancients called the literal sense. But the literal sense was uh, exploring the author's intention. Whereas literalism tends to stumble into reading symbolic language literally, reading metaphors literally. Now, they wouldn't do that on silly stuff like the trees clap their hands. Well, of course, we know that that's not to be taken literally. But in the early church, they would say stuff like this. Look at, um, we believe that, that these metaphors for God are projections. And so, for example, we don't think God wakes up or falls asleep. We don't think God has hands when he stretches out his hands. And we're like, yeah, 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 I know. And then to go, and also wrath. <laughs> and they regard wrath as entirely as a metaphor for the natural and supernatural consequences of our own actions. It's not that God is, is wrathing us, which is defined as violent anger. It's one of the seven deadly sins in Catholicism. And so they would say, uh, Father um, Cassian, St. John Cassian, was one of many of the early church fathers who just says, look, at if you literalize anger or wrath, you're creating an idol and committing a blasphemy. So that would be uh, an example where in, in the, my earlier stage, as reading the Bible as the word of God, I would see that God lashed out in anger and did violence, and then I would just accept that. That literally happened. Uh, the early church, though, they, they, they recognized that as deeply problematic because for them, Jesus Christ is the final of authority. And, you know, what we see that he, he was not wrathful at the cross when, if ever, he deserved to lash out in anger and violence. It would have been there. And precisely at that point, we see him love and forgive. Yeah, very much so. And that that reminds me, too, of like my my upbringing and actually reading your book. I had like a like a flashback moment to youth group because um, you quote. Uh, a section in Hebrews where it talks about the word of God is, you know, sharper than a double-edged sword and it, you know, can divide bone and marrow and whatever. And I, I remember being taught that and like my youth pastor holding the Bible and like, yes. like waving the Bible. He's just talking about it, that, you know, this is that. And, um, you know, taught, I was basically taught like verbal plenary inspiration. Yeah. Uh, like God basically whispered in Paul's ear, Hey Paul, you know, write this thing. And then, you know, Paul did it or the Holy Spirit, maybe it was. Yeah. Um, and then that like and also then straight up just inerrancy um, and any any kind of contradiction or question that we had with Scripture was just we didn't understand it properly or, you know, there wasn't actually a contradiction. You just had to do more study, whatever. And right. So 
yeah, just um, that was very much the world I, I grew up in. But then when I went to college and when I went to a Christian college <laughs> at that, um, all of those ideas shattered very, very easily when I took my first theology class. Yeah. And um, for me, the the catalyst to what you know a lot of our listeners call deconstruction was actually a book by N.T. Wright. And I have a feeling that was not N.T. Wright's <laughs> goal or motivation at all uh, for why he wrote. But I think that my story and experience and your story and experience isn't, they're not just these one-off things, but rather something that has been happening to many people. Oh, whole movements, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and so- N.T. Wright, right, he, I mean, he's so careful with scripture. He has a very high view of scripture that are kind of what I would regard inerrancy as a very low view of scripture. Cause it tells yeah. you it's so fragile, first of all, but then it also tells you before you open the Bible, what it can't do. <laughs> so in other words, I'm going to impose on the Bible, this rule that it can't ever include a conversation where authors are contradicting each other. Well, they've never met Jewish rabbis then clearly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I mean, this is, this is a conversation even between pro and anti temple prophets in the same era. And, and the, uh, and the Bible as sacred scripture includes those battles, those competing perspectives and worldviews, and it's glorious and it's wonderful. And then you come along and say, no, they can't do that. Well, what a low view of scripture, right? But N.T. Wright then became a gateway drug to taking the Bible more seriously, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I'm really grateful for his work. Uh, although I, I would say, um, you know, he's a, he's a biblical, modern biblical studies scholar. Right. And, um, and he's not as apt to move past the literal, the, in, it, he does the correct literal sense, authorial intent, but he doesn't do a whole lot of moving past that into the spiritual typological interpretation that you'd get in the fathers. So, mm-hmm. uh, but he certainly should be one that we're paying attention to in that first reading. Mm-hmm. So, could I could I just share what I'm talking about by first reading? And... No, most definitely, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so when we talk about the Emmaus way um, of reading, what I'm referring to is the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, and and so what he shows them is how Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures are pointing to him, prefiguring his passion and resurrection. All of them. The script, the whole of the scriptures that, that that we read the gospel from the Old Testament, and it makes sense of the life of Jesus. So, in the early church, the Emmaus way of reading included. I'm going to really reduce it to let's say three senses. So, the first sense was the literal sense, where you t- pay close attention to the words, to the genre, to the author's intent. That's what we see Wright doing so beautifully. The second reading. Is, is the moral reading. Now, not moralist, as in just saying, you know, this is, the, this is the faith, figuring out how to read this as law. No, the moral reading was, how will, this, how will these scriptures form me into a more Christ-like person? This is what Paul meant in 1 Timothy, that, um, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's helpful, for what? Well, for reproof, correction, for growth, for instruction, all of the, in other words, um, 
um, fathers like Origen and Origen said, like, as we're reading these scriptures, they better make me more Christ-like. If you haven't figured out how, how that works, then you shouldn't be preaching it, you know? So that's the moral sense, but you're never done. It's, it's, and this was my experience as an evangelical. We often stopped there. We'd say, okay, we've done the literal reading. We know what the author was intending. We've applied it to our lives. There's the moral reading. Uh, and now let's sing our closing hymn. But you're not done at that point. In fact, you haven't even read the Bible as scripture yet. We read the Bible as scripture when we come alongside Christ on the road to Emmaus. And he says, now, here's how this passage prefigures me. Here's how the Old Testament stories of victory anticipate the much greater victory of the cross and the resurrection. Here's how the stories of the Old Testament um, suffering and affliction prefigure the much worse suffering and affliction as Christ bears the sins and, and sorrows of all humankind for all time. Um, here's how the injustices of the Old Testament prefigure the betrayal of Christ and his crucifixion through um, people like Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod. And so suddenly now we're like, um, how do we read a story like Samson? <laughs> you know? Oh, well, in the end, if you're going to read it as scripture, you need to see how he prefigures Christ in some imperfect way. And so if I were preaching about Samson, I might imagine saying like, okay, what's the author's intent here, first of all, in this? And uh, what is what are the kind of, what moral formation can we receive from this story? But most importantly, where is Christ in this? Oh, I see in Samson a very imperfect image of him holding out his arms cross-like and pushing down the pillars of that temple and getting his greatest victory overall as a very faint shadow of Christ reaching out his hands and pushing down the gates of Hades and defeating not just Philistines, but death itself. You know, that that's how they would do this in the, in the early church. And that's the Emmaus way that Christ models and that the early church describes and trains us in. And so that's what I mean by the Emmaus way of reading, where you've got the, the, the literal, the moral, but most of all the spiritual or typological um, uh, signpost to Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that then all hinges one, you know, on the understanding that Jesus is the word of God. Yep. Which I know that you and I are on the same page when we say that. Uh, but there might be listeners for sure who that sounds confusing to, because for me growing up, I was told that the Bible is the word of God yeah, and that the Bible, uh, all of the language that I now like to use to talk about Jesus, yeah. uh, was originally given to me and said, this is how you should talk about the Bible. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I even had a conversation with a, a pastor friend of mine, uh, a mentor, even, uh, somebody who has been in my life since I was very young. And I was trying to have this Jesus as the word of God conversation with him, but he like, couldn't get there. Like it yeah. just didn't, it didn't compute for him. So like, when you talk about Jesus as the word of God, can you try to like picture someone like my, my pastor friend who can't quite get there? The Bible's the word of God. Yeah. And like, how would you draw them towards Jesus as the word of God? 
Well, I mean, a good thing to do, not, not that we want to have winning debates as our goal, right? right? That doesn't, right, right. But, if, but if we're asked the question <laughs> and if we're trying to communicate um, our convictions in a fair way, then I would start with, I would start inside the worldview of the one I'm talking to. And so, for example, the, this mentor of yours, um, it sounds to me like he would have great regard for the Bible, hopefully not just as a, a book on the shelf, but the actual words. And so what I might do is I might say, well, I don't think I'm saying a whole lot more than you would actually believe. Let's, you know, let's look at John 1 together. In the beginning was the word. There it is. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then later on in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. Um, I, I'm 100% sure that your mentor would already know that that's a, that the referent there is not the Bible, but it's Jesus. And I would say, now that's my foundational passage. Uh, then that leads me to asking, uh, how, where else do we see the word of God describe, um, referring to Jesus in the Bible? And you mentioned the Hebrews, is that chapter four, I think? The Hebrews, near the end of Hebrews four, well, in, in Hebrews four, he talks about the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces. Now, you could say, I have that experience when I read the Bible. I do, in fact. But what I notice is so many editions of the Bible, right after that verse, they will put a subheading in that fakes you out into thinking, okay, now we're going into new section. But the thing is, the very next verse refers back to this one with the pronoun he, <laughs> he, uh, who's the he that is the word of God? It's not it. It's it's not a book. It's it's our our faithful high priest who is the word of God who penetrates our hearts with conviction. Right. So so I'd lay that foundation first. That I'm saying that even if in some way we want to call the Bible the word of God. Um. The Bible itself makes Jesus primary, the primary referent. And then maybe there are other scriptures where you're like, actually, um, you know, when when Jesus says, you, you know, the word of God and it cannot be broken, he's not talking about himself. He is referring to actually not the Bible. He's referring to covenant promises within the Bible. And so... Um, it's like when God the Father says, you have my word on this. Is he saying, you have my book on this? Or is he saying, you can trust my promise on this, which is in the book? Absolutely. So perhaps we'd see the, well, not even, I was going to say then the Bible's tertiary. Well, hang on. And maybe not even. Because in addition to the Logos word of God, who is Jesus Christ, we have this Rhema word, which seems to be the message or the message preached. And so when, the, when, when a pastor gets up and he preaches the word, I hope, first of all, he's preaching Jesus. Uh, second, I hope he 
is is using the scriptures to testify to the word, which is the promises and covenants of God revealed and fulfilled in Jesus, you know? And so did the, did, did I hear the word of the Lord today through the pastor? Well, I, I sure hope so, but how would I know if I have? Well, because it's in alignment with the person of Jesus and his promises. So that's, that's kind of the approach I would take with this. And, um, and, and I, you can almost, I think I got this from Brian's own, or maybe it was, no, John McMurray. Um, these guys are fantastic Bible scholars. And one of them, and we all love the scriptures more than we ever have, actually. Um, and so you think about John 1 again, and it says of John the Baptist, he was not the word. He was pointing to the word. <laughs> and I would almost say that like with the Bible too. Jesus is the word of God and the Bible is a faithful prophet pointing to the word. It's a test of, it's a test of testimony, a witness to the word. And so, um, but it's only a witness to the word insofar as we're using it as a witness to Jesus. When we're not, uh, as I said before, we're not yet reading it as scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And and, um, that's really good news as well, because if, if Jesus then is the word of God and the Bible talks about Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, um, then that's really good news because that means God looks like Jesus always has always will. Um, even if we didn't, you know, quite know it yet. Yeah. And so that then has some implications for how we approach scripture. If we, you know, to use the, um, you know, correct word, a hermeneutic, if we have a Jesus-centered hermeneutic, when we read scripture, if Jesus is the lens we look through, then it's going to kind of change uh, how we approach or or deal with some things in scripture. For example, um, issues of like violence in scripture. That was the big thing for me. That was was the thing that kind of started causing me to question um, things like inerrancy was the violence attributed to God. But with this understanding of Jesus is the word of God, we can look at those stories and say, wow, God isn't like, God didn't do these bad, awful, evil things uh, because it doesn't look like Jesus, but that doesn't mean this isn't uh, helpful or useful uh, because now we can look and say, wow, look the the ugliness of humanity portrayed here that we then project onto God. But the good news is God doesn't actually look like that. Is it, does that seem fair? That's exactly right. You know, that's so good. Well, well said, Josh. In fact, like Paul would really give you a strong nod there in, in the first paragraph of first Corinthians 10, he basically does, does say what you just said. These, these stories are valuable as cautionary tales. You know, that's, that's the language I'll use for it. And it's, and, and he even gives examples where you're like, they're not telling you what God's will was. They're telling you what a mess we were in that requires God to come in the flesh to redeem us, right? And it's not even just that we're coming in after the fact and imposing Jesus on the text to change what it means. We're seeing the text with Jesus to get to the heart of what it meant in the first place and how how even apart from authorial intent, the spirit was laying a groundwork 
um, so that you could have a narrator who doesn't get it because the narrators are just extensions of the characters. So example, for Samuel 15, you've got, you've got the, the narrator, the author says the narrator says that God says to Samuel to go tell Saul to commit genocide because this is what God wants. And I read that and I'm horrified at first because I think the Bible's the word of God. And if the narrator says God said it, then God said it. And he, and it's at, and then, and then I stand back and I, and, um, and I recognize that the narrator is not a representative of God's will. The narrator is an extension of the character of Samuel. The narrator thinks the way Samuel thinks, but what's the author doing? So even the author and narrator aren't the same person. Anybody who's written a novel will know this. The narrator is not the author's voice. It's, it's connected to the characters. But the author behind this, especially if that author is the word of God, why is he giving us, why is he showing this passage? Well, he's not relaying these things without reference to Jesus who will come as the true judge. And from the judgment seat of Christ, which is the cross, um, we see a very different message. Samuel's message was, I want, God wants obedience, not sacrifice. Jesus says, uh, go and read what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. And Samuel had believed that God was saying, show no mercy. Jesus, who is God, the final word of God actually brings a, a word of correction to that way of seeing. Now, why, why not then just say, well, 1 Samuel 15 doesn't match Jesus, so let's get rid of it. Oh, no, we need it. We need to hold it up as a mirror because what the hell did we think we were doing in Iraq, right? <laughs> we were, we were going to go kick butt and kids, kill Muslims, and it was called by the leadership crusades in, and, and preached from pulpits as the will of God to fulfill um, some sort of crusade for Jesus. I mean, uh, we're talking people in, doing public spokesmen for the military invoking a kind of Christian themes as a justification uh, for, a, for a war when first, you know, the first sermon Jesus preaches already negates that. So then 1 Samuel 15, we hold it up as a mirror and, and, and say, look at, we're doing it again. We're projecting our violence onto God just the way Samuel did. And yet, but Jesus says, but Jesus says, and um, he has provided a means of victory that requires no, us to kill nobody. And that, in fact, under the new covenant, the word of God, okay, <laughs> want to talk word of God, the word of God says under the new covenant, they won't even train for war anymore. Well, how's that working for us? You know, like, have we, have we obeyed that? So yeah, I get, I, I, I can just see passages like that or, or, or the book of Joshua that's often been used um, as a way to glorify redemptive violence and religious wars. And I'm saying Jesus is not only correcting that. The book of jo Joshua itself was a critique of religious violence. And, and, and 
just because you've got individual stories in it that seem to glorify that, if you stand back and say, what is the author of this book up to? Oh, he's critiquing that whole way of thinking. No, God is not always on your side. No, he will not always give you the victory. No, you know, like, uh, and, and, um, and so, so I'm not apt to throw books out like that if we read them as critiques of current problems that are very pressing. Sorry, yeah. I went off there, Josh. Just, no, it's uh... good. <laughs> no, it's so good. It's perfect. Um, and it, it, it brings up to me this question too, when you start talking about like throwing out different books. And if we're talking about looking at the Bible or scripture as, um, you know, this thing that we want to look more Christ-like, well, I think it begs the question then, um, well, which version of the Bible are we talking about? Which you had a really nice section uh, in your book about this, the canon, um, and I think that's something that's that's really interesting. If we're talking this way, a more you know Christ-like word, a, a, a Jesus-centered, Jesus is the Word of God. What does that say about the canon of Scripture that we have now? Are we talking about just the Protestant canon? <laughs> are we talking about the Catholic Bible, the Eastern Orthodox, the Coptic? Wh which one are we talking about here, Brad? Right. Oh, good question. So um, let's start with that word canon. We, we've often used the canon to say, what does canon, what's the definition of canon? Well, it's, the, it's our collection that we call the Bible. It's like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> the canon of faith in the second century, and even before that, probably, the canon of faith was the gospel, the faith once delivered to the saints. Um, by Jesus, through his apostles, to all the churches led by bishops. So the canon was, what is the gospel? That's the canon. It's like your measuring stick, your ruler. We've said, well, the Bible's the canon and it's our measuring stick. No. Uh, the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, this is what we received and this is what we preach to you, that Christ died according to the scriptures. He's talking Old Testament, by the way that he rose again, according to the scriptures. And, and so he, 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 that's what he's referring to by canon is, is um, this is, this is the essential gospel. Um, Jude will call it the faith once delivered to the saints, the faith. Okay. So that's the canon of faith. Then in the early church, the question is, which books are canonical? That doesn't mean which books belong in the Bible because they belong in the Bible. <laughs> That's it's not circular reasoning. It's which books prefigure and align with the canon of faith. Which which books um, do we recognize as the scriptures that point to Jesus? The books that fulfilled that canonical function were included in the scriptures. The thing is though, it depended what region you were in, in uh, at the time in which books you might include. And so they, they debated on this for a long time. Um, and well, wait a minute, to this very day, we have different canons. Uh, it was, you know, the Catholic church and the Eastern Orthodox church, they include those parts of the Old Testament that we don't have in Hebrew anymore, but we did have it in Greek during Jesus' time. These were parts of the, of Jesus' Bible, of Paul's Bible, of John's Bible. Um, but the problem is when we got to, when we got to the Protestant Reformation, of all people, 
the 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 scripture alone people sola scriptura they dismissed that whole section of the bible because they didn't have it in hebrew and they needed it in hebrew so that they could call it some sort of absolute authority so that they could walk away from the authority of the church which is weird so now we've just cut out like how many more than a dozen books out of the bible <laughs> oh that seems like a bad idea to me um, so, so from my perspective, um, I, I'm part of a faith tradition that has that that recognizes um, a, a much larger canon, in the sense of we do believe those books uh, were part of Jesus' Bible and pointed to His death and resurrection in powerful, beautiful ways. Um, but let's give the Protestants some some credit here. Uh, the fact that they have 66 books, well, hopefully they recognize all of those books as somehow aligning with the canon of the faith of Jesus Christ. Well, then we need to preach that way. Um, if we're going to preach numbers, we better not just read the wrath of God calling for genocide in a, some literal fashion, but maybe we could look at the prophecies of Balaam and how they're fulfilled in Christ. It's actually incredibly beautiful passages. So, yeah, that's, uh, so I, I have a fatter Bible. Well, it doesn't really matter how fat your Bible is if you don't read it and, and follow it and use it as a witness of Jesus. So I know, uh, I know Orthodox people who never read their Bibles ever. So I, that doesn't really, how big is their Bible actually then? nothing <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah that that idea is interesting to me because i know so i know and understand you know church councils gathering and coming to an agreement like for us this is you know canonical but if we start with that understanding of canon as like does it um line up with this canon of faith it to what extent then could we say not trying to add it to the bible but is there any way that we can talk meaningfully about things that are still being written and spoken about today as canonical in the sense that it, it lines up with the canon of faith or do you see what I'm asking? I do see what you're asking. In fact, like some, some writings from the last, let's say the last hundred years, there, there may be some that are inspired by the Holy spirit as clear witnesses to the good news of Jesus. I would yeah. regard uh, all of Brian Zahn's books like that. You know, that's what I would aspire to, that I could write books where I'm not claiming dictation from the Holy Spirit, but I am asking for the guidance and counsel of the Holy Spirit to lead me to be an empowered witness hmm. uh, for Jesus. Now, the reason why that's not canonical in the same sense as the early church is I think one of the aspects of this faith once delivered is that would it is is that the books involved in that um, were the voices of the first witnesses, mm -hmm. you know, and so and when I say voices, I don't mean they were always the authors, you know. <laughs> so Mark is the voice of Peter as a first witness. Um, the the Pauline literature is some of it written by him, some not, but mm -hmm. it's Pauline in the sense of this is the witness. This is, 
This is faithful to the testimony of the one who met Christ in person on the road to Damascus. And so, so there is a uniqueness where you're not, you, you don't want to expand past the eyewitnesses of, mm. uh, or, or their voices in, in the first century, um, while also saying, uh, yes, I, I hold some current authors in high regard as being in tune with the faith once delivered. So they are faithful. We could say it this way. They are faithfully proclaiming the canon of faith. Mm-hmm. They're using the scriptures to do so. Um, and, and, but, but the big thing is that their, their, their focus is on Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yeah. Sweet. Right that, was a, on. that was a fascinating question, Josh. Nice yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering, I thought, uh, that my brain just went there. Um, in, in regards to what we do have as quote canon, um, the, some of those books are the four gospels that we have, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And an interesting thing that, you know, people notice and have noticed and have been noticing for a long time is that those four gospels don't really line up all the time. Right. They have differing ideas, differing uh, details on how they talk about things. And so if, if Jesus is the ultimate authority, and where we hear about Jesus is in the Gospels, but they don't agree. How can we trust that Jesus is the ultimate authority? And, and are the Gospels trustworthy? Yeah, very good question. So uh, one thing I would, I would want to notice is, um, is that if, they, if we didn't have four perspectives, let's say if we had four authors who obviously had consorted <laughs> To, to get their stories straight, that might actually have less credibility. Um, but also we have an understanding of how these gospels were formulated, um, which I'll say very quickly if I can. Um, I believe that we have Mark as a protege of Peter, who's the first to write a gospel. And then along comes uh, Matthew, who uses his own source material as an eyewitness alongside of Mark's account, and he develops his gospel. And then this is my opinion of how it unfolded. It's a, it's one approach. And then we have Luke who comes along. He has Mark's material. He has Matthew's material. And he also tells us right up front. And I also went to talk to many people who are eyewitnesses and one that we know for sure, just because there's so much stuff by Mary that only she could know, that Luke, who's on Paul's team, who'd been in Ephesus, he'd clearly gone to see Mary, who also was settled in Ephesus when John took her there. And so now we've got these three books. Because of those, because because of the interdependence, they're more in synchronicity, right? So we call actually call them the synoptic gospels. Uh, where they differ, it's um, you can see that the differences aren't so much just contradictions, but they are interpretations. And this becomes even more important when we re- then read John, who writes a whole generation later and includes a whole lot of stories that aren't in any of the synoptics, because he's thinking, look, at the, there's a, some pretty important stories here that we don't want to lose as part of the tradition. And now that I'm the last 
disciple left, I, I better put it down in writing. So he tells us things that we would have never known about Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Mary Magdalene meeting Jesus in the garden after the resurrection, and on and on. Um, <clears throat> he's also focusing for different purposes on, on uh, Jesus' conflicts with the Judean temple establishment, whereas much of the synoptics is his Galilean ministry. Well, John needs to do this because now he's in a big conflict with the synagogue Jews in the 90s who are kicking the Christian Jews out of the synagogue. So they're having this battle and Jesus battles with the Pharisees are very relevant to that moment. Um, but again, I said, these are, the gospels are not simply video camera recordings of history. They are intentionally theological reflections on the meaning of this person. And in, in modern times, we think the best history is from arm's length and objective. In the first century, that's absolutely not how they saw it. They said the most reliable history would be told by those who were involved in the events themselves, who were eyewitnesses and who share their perspective. And so, so um, you, so that's another reason why. John has theologic, different theological agendas than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke want you to see the crucifixion as a crime and a murder and an injustice, and it is. John wants you to see the crucifixion as a victory and as um, Christ's defeat of Satan, sin, and death, even as he's being glorified on the cross, you know, so that's, his a different agenda there. And so his descriptions will sometimes reflect his theology more than uh, what the video camera would have told you, you know, you know, and, and the, the early church saw the value in this and saw the value of collecting all four and using all four in worship without bending them to harmonize them. And, and really appreciating the different perspectives that, that come in there. And yeah, even down to details like what day of the week was Jesus crucified on? Well, probably Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the actual date, but John, John, John sets the date to um, the day of Passover, not the day after Passover because he wants you to know that Jesus is the lamb slain. Um, and, and so he has Jesus crucified at the same time when the lambs were being crucified on Passover. Whereas that's already happened in earlier in, before the last supper for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they're, they're, they're doing things like this. So if you could just think of maybe a, a summary is this, that the gospels are a unique genre that includes both historical details for sure, but also theological reflections that are making a point to very different audiences, Greeks, Romans, Jews, you know, those who are in Ephesus versus those elsewhere. And, and so even, even that is going to, um, and, and between, you know, 30 years apart in terms of reflection. Yeah. No, I absolutely love that. Uh, it's super helpful. And I, I remember too, there was somebody who did try to harmonize the gospels 
and he was condemned as a heretic, if I recall correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, don't do that. This is a good thing. You're, you're, you're uh, missing the point of using scripture. You see what it, it's like the inerrancy thing, isn't it? I'm yep. going to make this Same. fit. It's like when you don't make, you don't make the Bible do anything, read what's there and worship, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And so I guess one more thing that I just want to throw out there. And then um, I have one more question for you and, and we'll, we'll wrap up to, to be right. fair to your time. But one thing that I've noticed um, for myself is that, I guess eight-ish, nine months ago, maybe, I started um, learning more about things like contemplative uh, practices and centering yeah. prayer. And I started to experience God and know God in a way that I hadn't before, um, which I, I mentioned briefly at the top of the show. But what's interesting about that is in these centering prayer experiences, in this contemplative, uh, more mystical form of faith that I find myself in, the Jesus who looks like God and the Jesus who is the word of God is almost just intuitive with the experience that I'm actually having uh, with God. Like they line up. Yep. Is that anything like, has that been a part of your journey at all? Do you understand what I'm talking about? I do. And I'll, I'll, I would, I would say it this way. Um, um, I see Jesus in the gospels and I behold Jesus in my heart. Mm, okay. Where they line up is good news to me. <laughs> um, Cause it means that, that I, that I'm not just creating a projection mm -hmm. where they don't line up. I need to do some quality control. <laughs> and here's how that looks for me. Where they don't line up, one of two things has gone sideways. And that's okay. It's part of my growth. Yes. In fact, entirely expected, inevitable, and something not to be condemned for. In fact, it's how God grows us. So, if I see the Jesus of the Gospels and he's not sounding like the Jesus in my heart, it one of two problems is happening. One is, it could be I am projecting my Jesus mm -hmm. a little bit, uh, projecting myself onto my, we'll call him heart Jesus. Yeah. And heart Jesus, oh, oh it's heart Jesus is sounding a lot more like, more like me <laughs> <laughs> than than like the Jesus in the gospel. So that, that can, you need to check that, um, do some quality control. But the other problem could be, ha could be happening as I'm hearing the heart Jesus just fine. And the gospel Jesus is not aligning to heart Jesus because of my hermeneutics. Yeah. Right. So it could be a heart problem of projection, or it could be a Bible problem of hermeneutics. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm constantly watching for that and, and how um, um, seeing, seeing how the Bible wants to assault my projections and how Jesus in my heart wants to assault my hermeneutics <laughs> until. <laughs> and so uh, it, in practice, what that looks like is I'll be reading through the Bible. I'll get to like end of Mark nine. Jesus will say something I don't like. Yeah. 
I don't like that you said that. And he's like, okay. So either your hermeneutics needs to change or your heart needs to change. Let's check which it is today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that might take a year. Yeah. <laughs> and so what became, what might've been a, a verse I hated a year later becomes a verse I love because now I've seen how heart Jesus and gospel Jesus integrate to transform me. Mm. And the trick there then is to come under Jesus rather than standing over him. Like I've got him in a Petri dish and I'm going to slice him up with a scalpel or, or a scripture for that matter. Right. And there's like, no, no, it's me. It's me. That's the issue here. What's we're, what we're working on with Jesus is whether it's my hermeneutic or my heart. Uh, Yeah. I love it. Thank you. That's a great answer. It really works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the, the final question just to wrap up with, which is crazy to think because we've barely even scratched the surface of your book. It's seriously, Brad, it's fantastic. I, um, you were gracious enough to, to send me a PDF copy so I could read it in preparation for this interview, but I definitely purchased a hard copy that will come out, you know, will show up as soon as uh, it's released, which I'm excited about. Yeah. We've got uh, through what about three chapters. Yeah, I know, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the just one thing that I wanted to ask is I think it's again it comes down to experience and your story with this reading and understanding what have been the fruits of that you know I was always taught one thing I was always taught growing up in youth group was check the fruit of something check the fruit of something um so what what has been the fruits of this more Christ-like word reading scripture the Emmaus way yeah that's a good question I I really feel like I can, I can now trust beyond, beyond a doubt, or if I have a doubt, I still trust God enough to come, but that God is good. And, uh, and at the same time, I can trust that scripture is a reliable witness to the person of Jesus that if I not only read it, but I pray it, I contemplate it, that I will be formed into the character of Jesus. In other words, it's harmonized my idea that God is good and that, you know, with, with, with the reliability of scripture, instead of them being a war, at war with each other, because when we first start to deconstruct our ideas that got about you know, you know, and, and, and say, hang on, I, if God is good all the time, and he looks like Jesus, well, so much for the Bible, it's like, no, no, <laughs> if, if we read the Bible with Jesus, the Emmaus way, we'll even trust the Bible, and what it's up to, as long as you know what it's up to. Yeah, I love it. And that, for me, the, the word that comes to mind is transformation. Yeah. Um, and an experiential knowing of God. And those, I feel like those were the things that I was so longing for and being told that I was going to get, you know, back in the, the, my early, like more evangelical days growing up in a Southern Baptist church that I, I was never able to quite achieve until Jesus was centralized. Jesus, you know, became the word of God for me. Yeah. He already was, but you know what I mean? And that information came. I I do have enough time to give you one example that's important to me. Yeah, Um, sure. So 
in the Orthodox Church, we pray the scriptures a lot. And one of the scriptures we pray every week, probably, it includes the section that's like calling for, you, you know, rejoicing when your enemy's children have been dashed against the stones. And at, as a young literalist, I might have accepted that maybe as a violent person, even rejoiced in it. <laughs> but at some point, when you've been walking with Jesus long enough, you know he doesn't want that, and it doesn't represent his heart. So the temptation then is to hate that verse and to try to get rid of it or ignore it. But in my church, I can't. I have to pray it. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? And I know what Jesus has said and that he wants no malice in my heart. Okay, so what's going on? I pray that verse, well, the whole chapter. When I get to that verse, I'm like, no, I don't want that. And then God is like, yes, you do, because why are you picturing so-and-so? <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> but no, I really don't want that. And he's like, and yet there it is in you. This verse has exposed malice in you. And that needs to go, son. And so I subject myself to that verse to expose the malice in me so that Christ can heal it. And then I can approach the Eucharist with no malice in my heart. And for whatever reason, malice sneaks in again by next week. But I'm in just in denial of it because I'm such a nice guy, you know. And he's like, are you, though? <laughs> um, what if you're just someone who struggles? And, and, and what are you going to do? You know, this, this is a very um, vulnerable thing for me to share. But when my son was going through a divorce with his wife and, and they have a child together and um, full disclosure, they get along great now. Everything's it's really beautiful. But at the time, I was so angry that the Lord brought up that verse with me and said, what are you going to do when the child of your enemy is your granddaughter? What shall we do? And I'm like, and all I could do is repent of my malice, right? And pray for mercy for me, for her, for them. And it worked, <laughs> you know, ultimately we, we've seen a beautiful reconciliation, but one factor in that was I had to face this demonic darkness in me that, that would have preferred vengeance. And he's like, how are we going to get that out of there? I know you'll pray this Psalm until you don't want to. And then when you do, you'll love this song, psalm because of how it set you free from the very thing it was designed to set you free from. And like, that's so inspired. I would have never thought of that. <laughs> what a wonderful counselor. And now I'm free and I just love her to bits, you know. Man. So I thought I better share that because it's an example of how we'll take something we hate in the Bible and we want to know if you go there with Jesus, you can, you can trust transformation to happen. Yeah. Brad, that is perfect. Like that is such a beautiful story. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and I think again, just something that it comes up over and over and over again, um, that I keep repeating ever since I heard it, um, was Rob Bell. It told me that, um, basically in, in life, there's an, we have this invitation to share our story and go deep enough. 
um, so that other people can find themselves in that story as well. Yeah. And so when we when we share our, our vulnerable stories and these stories of transformation, I think it it does something. It makes a point that something like a book or a heady theological conversation can't quite do. And there's exactly. an invitation in it and it's beautiful. So thank you for, for sharing. My pleasure. Yeah. Brad, where can people who just, again, have gotten like the smallest little taste of your new book, where can people find you? Um, and also I'll be sure to link your book in the show notes so that people can pick up a copy. Uh, sure, you could start with bradjersak.com. And then from there, you know, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Sweet. Um, and then the book is going to be available um, through anywhere that you order books. Uh, you can order it through your local bookstore or or through online bookstores or even from the publisher's website for that matter. Sweet. Awesome, Brad. Well, thank you again so much for your time today, listeners. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, seriously, do yourself a favor. Pick up a copy of Brad's new book. You will not be disappointed. Um, and as always, go Caps. Peace and love, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. <laughs> yep.